When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking with Robert Ramaswamy, who's an acquisitions editor for a new imprint that's been started by the University of Colorado Press, and he's here to tell us all about it. Welcome to the show, Robert. Thanks, Christina. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so glad that you're here and we get to talk about this exciting new imprint in Wyoming. But before we jump into that, would you please tell us a bit about yourself? Sure, I would be happy to. Um, What's the best way to think about that? Let me work backwards. So right now, I'm an acquisitions editor at the University Press of Colorado, um, and I was brought on to start a new imprint for us, um, the University of Wyoming Press. So we're sort of like a consortium press, meaning like it's an umbrella organization that brings together a bunch of different universities um, as opposed to like a traditional university press that would be housed within a particular um, university system. Um, So Wyoming's a new addition to that consortium, and I was brought on to handle that. And I started this position in February, before which I was a Mellon University Press Diversity Fellow. I think that's the (laughs) right title at Ohio State University Press, um, where I worked with their editor-in-chief who um, acquires in Latinx studies and also does some trade nonfiction um, and also some rhetoric and communications. Before that, I was um, at another fellowship, I think funded by Mellon also, um, at the University of Michigan, at their sort of publishing services arm, which is like they get paid to do publishing projects and that's Michigan publishing. And they had recently acquired a ebook collection, the humanities ebook collection, which used to be managed by ACLS. And I was working with them to help them, I guess you'd say like establish a new workflow for selecting titles to add to that collection um, that was more attentive to rethinking the canon, including different kinds of voices in that collection, um, which has been really important, especially for institutions with um, less money to spend on ebook collections. Um, And before that, I was a graduate student for a long time. So I was uh, in a PhD program at GW in American Studies. I started there in DC in um, 2014. I was there for two years and then transferred to the University of Michigan in American Culture. And I left that program ABD in 2021, once I realized I was kind of fully in the publishing world. Um, And so I have that part of the experience as well. And I think the last thing I'll say is that I definitely don't regret being in graduate school, but part of what I learned while I was there was that um, I really like, you know, 
supporting research. I like books. I like being in intellectual conversation. Um, but to me, the sort of like teaching, editing, mentoring, those were the parts that um, kind of felt more most suited to my skill set. And those, they were like the most exciting to me. So that's what I love about being an editor is I get to like move in and out of different projects. And it's not my job to be the subject matter expert. It's my job to guide different researchers through the process and help them bring their research dream, dreams um, into reality. It sounds like you have a, a love affair with books. <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely. Do you remember sort of a distinct moment when it started or was little Robert sort of always surrounded by books? Like what day are we going to the library to get more books? Oh yes. Oh, I was surrounded by books. I grew up in Northern Michigan, so we didn't really have a bookstore in our town so much so we would drive to a nearby town called Traverse City it was like an hour away and we got to go to the bookstore there were a couple there um, and pick out one or two books and that was like a very exciting thing for me that happened every couple of weeks and at the time I was really into science I mean I remember when I was in high school I wanted to be like a PhD in biology and study frogs or something um, but then through that process, I actually became really interested in gender studies and then thinking more about race and ethnicity. And that brought me to American studies. And so I finished college as an American studies major. When, when academics have to move, one of the most difficult things is moving their personal library. How'd that work out for you? It's been a struggle. So my partner is a PhD student also. um, And she was an English major in college, did poetry stuff. Um, So we have a lot of books. And I do remember at one point we had those little moving pods. And the guy said his forklift was really struggling um, to pick (laughs) ours up. And he was, what is in here? And I was like, oh, I think it's full of books. so I don't know. I never want to move again, though. So I just keep my books here. <laughs> and so your new position, you're able to do remotely? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I'm actually still in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, and my partner's in her third year of her program. So she has quite a long t- ways to go. Um, and I'm, I'll plan on periodically traveling to Laramie specifically to be with the Wyoming folks. Um but also maybe to Denver and um, some, some of these other parts of the Mountain West where we have offices and people. So it sounds like your home life is fully supportive of your work life. Uh, so let's delve into work life. I, you started in February. Can you walk us through sort of a typical day um, as an acquisitions editor? And I know there's no typical, but just give us a taste. Yeah, that's such a great question. I think so, um, a couple of things. So one thing that's atypical about what I'm doing is that I am starting a new imprint. So like what we would say is there's not an active pipeline. And by pipeline, I mean like a a series of books that's at different stages in the process, you know, from proposal to sort of internal review where we decide if we want to put it through peer review to peer review, revisions, um, all the way up through what we call transmittal. Um, so there are like three groups of people at a university press. There, there's the editorial team, the people who acquire, who get books. Um, there's the production team, the people who actually make books. Um, they take a manuscript and turn it into a book. 
um, which is a lot of work. And then of course we have sales and marketing. So the people who sell the books and I only do the first part. Um, so as far as actual tasks, that could be reading proposals that just come into me. That could be so many different kinds of soliciting proposals. I send cold emails to a lot of people and ask them um, if they just want to talk about their field or if they have projects or if they know people who have projects. Um, I meet with folks like that. I meet with authors. Um, I review proposals to see if they seem like something that would work with the um, list areas we're trying to acquire and sort of the I guess the bench of peer reviewers that we have available to us, like, is this something that we can do a good job with based on what we've done before? Um, sending things out for peer review, which is a really time consuming process because it involves like sometimes you email 20 different people to find two people who are available to do peer review for a project. Um, and you have to research like who's gonna be the best fit if this is an interdisciplinary project do I need a historian and a lit studies person or like what's the best, you know, so there's, there's that aspect. Um, but I would say like most of what takes up my time is little administrative tasks. So like you are the project manager for every book and you're making sure it's at the right place in the process and that the people who need to be contributing are aware of um, the sort of deadlines that they're working with. And then it's also just a lot of relationship management and network building. So author relations, um, maintaining good relationships with peer reviewers, and then internally making sure that the production folks are happy, that the manuscripts you're sending them um, after peer review and when they're ready to go are like in good shape so that they can do their job effectively. Um, and working with marketing to understand what these different books are about and um, who they should be selling them to, what the audience is, like how they can pitch them, all that kind of stuff. And I found you through a post on social media where you said you were interested in revised dissertations. And I was so excited because there's mixed information out there about whether or not you can revise a dissertation for publication, which presses are interested, and what actually constitutes a revised dissertation. So I think there's a lot of um, confusion, and that may result in more rejections than, than um, there would be if people truly understood what you all mean by a revised dissertation. And when you're asking for them to come across your desk, how do they match it up to you? And what are you looking for to say, oh, yes, they revised this to the point that it was really ready to send to me. I'm excited. I can say yes, because we want to get people the yes. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's such a great set of questions, Christina. Can I start with maybe like one of them and then you prompt me to move along as we go so um how about like the question of like do you actually want to revise your dissertation into a book like let's start with like I think there are a few reasons that that might not be the path you want to go and to me actually what's most important is do you have the energy and capacity um to stay committed to this project for another however many years. Um, a lot of people by the time they defend are just so done with that project. Um, and 
you're asking a lot of yourself to to turn it into a book. You're probably going to have to do additional research. You might have to reorganize things. You might have to cut a lot of what you've already done. Um, you might have to think about audiences differently. You'll probably have to read more books that have come out in the meantime if your dissertation has you know, been done for five, 10 years. Um, and that's like a lot of work. And if it's too much of an emotional commitment for you, um, it might make sense to like be energized about a different project that you're starting as a book. Um, caveats to that being is like, you might not have the resources in terms of time and um, research funding to like do a different project. So you might be kind of stuck with what the dissertation was. Um, and it's just like the best of, <laughs> of what you can do moving forward. And it's what you need for your career advancement and so forth. Um, and then also, I think it depends on discipline a little bit. Like if you are writing a history dissertation that it has involved so much archival research and traveling to different places, and it just takes a really long time, um, and it's harder to start a new project um, in a field like that versus one where your sources are are kind of more readily accessible to you. And it might, you know, you still have to do the analysis and the writing, but the actual finding of the sources isn't going to take um, as much time and money um, and stress on your part. The other thing to think about is some people do have their dissertation, but they also like, you know, some people are just able to work on multiple things at one time and they have sort of these shadow projects that develop out of their research. Um, that didn't fit into the dissertation, but are taking on lives of their own. Um, so maybe pursuing that is the thing that's easier for the book. Um, but that's all just to say, like, I think those are the good reasons to not want to revise your dissertation into a book. Um, I don't think it's necessarily that um, presses don't want revised dissertations full stop. It's more that, like, what are you going to be able to commit to in terms of crafting the book? Um, does that kind of make sense? That is really helpful. It does make a lot of sense. And I know it's going to resonate with a lot of listeners um, to the space where they are right now, that just sense of being depleted, or I don't think I can do any more with this. And sometimes it really is the advice that editors give, like stick it in a drawer for two years. And then open it up with fresh eyes and say, hey, am I re-energized by this? And if I was, what would it look like in its new version? Because the book is not supposed to be just the dissertation with a prettier cover. Yeah, I think that's that's such a good point. I, and then, I mean, and the reason I keep saying it's so much work to revise a dissertation into a book, I mean, I think there's almost, I don't know if this used to be the case in the olden times or something, but um, it's, I don't know of it ever being the case that somebody can just like send a dissertation through peer review and copy editing, and then it's good to go and it gets published. Like it's always going to involve a lot of work. And I think to like um, concretize that a little bit, like the reason it involves so much work is that the goal of a dissertation and the goal of a book are, are not the same. So you write a dissertation so that you can finish your PhD most of the time, right? It's like the last thing you need. That's why we say all but dissertation. It's the last thing you need um, to receive that degree, to be sent out into the world. Um, 
I had somebody tell me once that it's like your union card in the industry. It's the thing that says that you are um, competent and you can like go out and be a, a practitioner in this academic field. Um, a book is meant to be sold to people, um, or if it's open access, it's meant to be like distributed to an audience. Um, and so it's meant to like, just engage a wider range of people. It's also, um, it's supposed to make sense within a conversation that is current within a field. So it's supposed to speak to other books. Um, and it's supposed to be useful to people, whether it's for research or changing their um, thinking in terms of secondary sources or something that they can use to teach. Um, and that's just a really different set of expectations and goals for what this object is meant to do. And that's why it's a lot of work to change a dissertation into a book. So the, uh, the next part of the question is, how does someone know that it's ready to send to you? Or if you wanted to go on the flip side, how, when you see it and it's on your desk and the, and the light bulbs, like all the green lights turn on for you and you say, yes, this is ready. What, what was cueing you that this was ready to be sent to you? This is revised enough and you, you're interested in acquiring. Yeah. I think, um, the two things that, that really stand out to me, um, are the, the, organization, like what is the structure of this thing? Um, and then also the, the contribution it's making. Um, and that's like, what conversation does it fit into? Is it clear that it fits into a conversation? Um, and has this person done a good job of identifying, um, what's the term we use? Competing volumes, right? So comps, so similar books, uh, things that would come up in a also of interest search if you were looking for this book on a retailer's website? Um, do they kind of have a sense of where it fits in and why people would want to buy it? So to start with the organization bit, um, you know, dissertations are so much about evidence and about demonstrating that you have um, carried out like a thorough research process in terms of your primary sources um, and that you've carried out a thorough review of the relevant secondary literature um, that you're engaging with. Um, and so in a lot, of, a lot of the cases, they kind of look like compendia. Um, and um, this especially depends on the field, but sometimes, you know, in the social sciences, that'll end up being like, it is a it's an introduction, and then there's a whole chapter that's literature review, and then there's a whole chapter that's methods, and then there's one case study, two case study, um, and then there's a conclusion, which I think works really well for a dissertation, um, but doesn't always work for a book, right? Because we want to read, <laughs> um, we want a book to be readable, um, and by we I just mean any reader, um, and those of us who have read a lot of academic books know that there are some that are valuable because like this is good research and it helps change our thinking. And there are some that are valuable and we also enjoy reading because they have some kind of narrative drive, whether it's following stories or it's a really compelling argument that kind of develops over the course of the chapters. Um, and I think a lot of that becomes really obvious in the organization itself. Like how did they think about these different chapters and how they unfold and build on each other um, and what's going to get someone past the introduction and actually reading 
through the chapters and continuing um, on through the end of the book. Um, the last thing I'll say, so, and I said that other piece was contribution. That doesn't mean it has to be like the most original, like intervention ever. Um, that's not the only way to make a contribution to a scholarly conversation, right? So I'm looking for something that's um, maybe in some ways like um, realistic about um, how it is just one book and it's it's making a limited contribution and it's um, only doing one thing within the field. Um, but it's also generous to like books that have come before um, and how this book interacts with them um, and uh, how it like moves the field in some way, whether it carries it forward or helps us move back to a different set of questions that we've neglected um, uh, or helps bring different parts of different fields or different parts of the same field together, um, all that kind of good stuff. And um, the thing that I hate to see is like, there's no book like this on the market um, because that's like never the case. Um, and it's, it's then going to require me to like do the Googling and figure out what books books are like this on the market <laughs> and kind of assemble that information myself. Um, and I'd rather see that come from the author. So for people who are sort of expanding the conversation, there isn't a book exactly like theirs, which is what compelled them to write it. A lot of um, original research is driven by their, how come there weren't books about this subject? I would love to know about this subject. How do we broach that without sounding like we didn't do our research or we're super arrogant? Like I have found what no one has before. Like we're, We want to avoid both of those things, but we do want to let you know that we have something that's, that's a bit different and adds to existing conversations because it's different. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And thank you for that clarification. I mean, and a lot of the time it's about telling stories that haven't been told and are really going to change how we understand a field. So I think the right way to do that is to say, um, you know, you're not necessarily going to find books just like this, but here's a book maybe in a different area that has tried to do a similar thing. Um, okay, maybe the question to ask yourself is like, what what did I use for models for what I'm doing here, right? Like, what was a book I admired that helped me understand um, how I could make my contribution? And is that something I could include in the competing volumes? Um, even if it's not the same exact topic, it's like kind of in the orbit um, and will help me as an editor understand where this book fits in in the world of of books. Um, another direction to go um, would be taking some time to show some gratitude for the books that really helped you get to where you are, because um, certainly there were things that you read that you built your own argument on, and you can acknowledge their limitations while also talking about um, how they were important to you, how they're important to the field. And then you say, you know, this book does something different than those other books. Um, and, uh, but they were still important to my thinking. And this is why I'm excited to add it to that conversation. So you can say I'm inspired by this person's methodology 
and I'm indebted to this person, uh, the way that they use a similar source in a different geographical region. And you can kind of pull together mentors that influence you, even though you are arguably trotting some new ground. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a really good, (laughs) that's a really good way to put it for sure. Um, You know, I mean, in some ways, like show me not your literature review, but like what's in your mental library as you're thinking about how your book fits in, like, where do you actually see it on the shelf? Um, And, and answering some of those questions can be really helpful for the editor. Editors typically have wish lists. If, what is yours? In terms of the types of projects I would love to see? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, so a strength of University Press of Colorado in the past has been doing some kind of niche regional histories about the Mountain West. And some of those are for people doing recreation themselves. Like, this is a book about stories of... Um, river running or mountain climbing in this particular place. And it's a Colorado story, but we're also thinking about the history and we're thinking about the ways different communities have tried to interact and in managing this place. Um, but I'm interested in, in those types of stories that are putting the Mountain West in context and specifically putting Wyoming in context. So, um, you know, I've talked with a lot of graduate students lately who are doing really cool projects on stuff like recreation, like mountaineering or skiing, and how those are sites of kind of formations of U.S. empire. Those are sites of struggle over um, settler colonialism. Um, There's sites of racial formation and formation of gender identity. Um, And so I'm really interested in, like, how can we use our the regional expertise that our press already has as an entry point to thinking about the Mountain West in context in the United States, um, in the globe, at different scales. Um, And I think those projects are definitely out there. And I'm just, I'm excited to see one that's at the proposal stage and that we can really get cracking on. You're in Michigan. That's right. And for for me personally, my uh, research is, uh, in New England. And so when I'm away from New England for too long, I start to feel a disconnect from place. How do you stay rooted in the Mountain West when you're so far away? Do do the the manuscripts just re-immerse you or or do you have to go get uh, a booster dose of the Mountain West by traveling? That's a great question. I mean, and it's one that I haven't figured out the answer to yet. (laughs) Um, So, you know, it's like a new thing. I've only been here for a few months. Um, I think traveling is going to be a part of it. But I think also like the way that remote work has allowed us to build community, I think like at least once a week, I'm having a Zoom conversation with somebody at one of our member institutions. So we have a whole host of uh, universities and colleges in Denver that kind of contribute to the press and our um, part of our editorial committee and all this stuff. Um, then there's the University of Wyoming, Utah State, University of Alaska. And I think talking to, to folks who teach at and live in those communities um, really helps me understand what questions are most important to them. Um, and I think, yeah, it's going to have to involve some travel um, 
to the West as much as I can, um, which is difficult in this day and age. But I think you're right that like there, you have to be really active about seeking connections um, to the region if you're interested in doing regional work. The press was started uh, fairly recently, and there's talk about funding concerns with all university presses. Was there a funding infusion that allowed the expansion? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, the way that University Press of Colorado works is that um, member institutions all contribute money annually. Um, And it was really the folks at the University of Wyoming's libraries who figured out how to make this a part of their budget and contribute to the consortium at large. Um, And so that was a big source of money infusion, as you put it. And then also, um, there were some specific grants that our um, director applied for. So the first year of my salary is paid through an NEH grant. and different federal and state funds um, we've collected over the years. But right now our plan is to sort of ramp up the contribution that University of Wyoming Libraries is making as we um, as we ramp up the, the titles that are coming out through the press. But the whole thing that's great about the consortium model is like <laughs> cost sharing, basically. So we have the same production team for all of these imprints. So we didn't have to like, hire a new set of production people um, to start um, this new University of Wyoming Press. We will probably have to add to their staff as our overall list grows. Um, But we have this like, you know, those in-house costs are like already accounted for to some extent, if that makes sense. Do you have a goal for how many titles a year you're going to release and will it amp up or do you want to maintain a steady like we release 10 titles a year? Yeah, I mean, I would love to, five years from now, um, maybe that's too ambitious, (laughs) but we'll say it anyway, because, you know, what's there to lose? So if five years from now, we had like um, 20 titles coming out, I think that would be great. And I think we are kind of shooting, we have four editors and a full load for an editor, I think is 20, 25 titles. There are editors who do more. but I think that's a very reasonable amount to expect. But that's going to take a long time to reach. Um, and so right now I have to kind of use different metrics to think about what's happening. Um, think about how many proposals I'm getting. Think about how many projects I'm saying to peer review would be the next step. Think about how many contracts I'm signing with authors would be the next step and kind of build from there. So, it, you know, we're not just going to hit 2025 right away. Um, we have to sort of taper up to that. So your title is acquiring acquiring editor, and you just mentioned that you have four editors. Is there a ranking, for lack of a better word, where um, someone ultimately signs off on all projects, and then projects are distributed among the editors, or what? What does it look like in house when when things are acquired, and then people find out who their editor is going to be? That varies a lot from press to press. So it's like the nuts and bolts of the process are the same, right? You get a proposal, you decide to pursue the proposal, it goes through peer review. Um, There's either an advanced contract before it's completed or a final contract after it's completed. It goes to some kind of editorial board um, and then it's transmitted, 
like all those pieces of the process um, happen at every press, but the way that the decisions are made changes. Um, and we're a pretty collaborative team. And also there's like a lot of, um, we get a, a lot of editorial power as individual editors at UPC. So we do have an editor in chief. Um, her name is Rachel LeBay and she acquires for our Utah State University imprint. And she's mostly acquires in rhetoric and writing and folklore now. Um, so I think in some sense, it's less that she's approving and, and rejecting everything and more that she's like the person we can go to for support if we can't figure out what to do in a certain situation, like we have mixed peer reviews or something. Um, but generally, we're all taking on our own projects. And then if they're a project that's in a place that kind of sits between the different lists we acquire, um, I think it's an expectation of, of the way we work that we would go to each other and say, like, um, you know, where, where do you think this belongs? Should it be my book? Should it be more book, your book? Um, when we're adding more editors, we want to be like growing um, what the press is doing instead of competing with what each other are acquiring. Um, and then I guess the last thing I'll say is like the initial t decision. So a lot of presses have like a internal um, review process where all of the editors will meet as a committee for every proposal that an editor wants to pursue um, and decide whether to go forward or not. And I think um, we probably do that on a little bit more of an individual basis here. So we get to pursue our own projects, um, but we're kind of consulting each other along the way. And that's part of the expectation, um, but it's less formal at that initial stage. Did that make sense? Did that answer your question? It's it does. And it sounds really collaborative and like there's a strong uh, mentoring uh, capacity that goes on rather than seeking approval. You go and you say, hey, what do you think about this? It's a lot of thought sharing and thought partnering. How are those relationships uh, strengthened in a remote world? Do you have like a Friday night virtual cocktail party? It just seems like getting to know each other helps you then trust the work relationships more because this sounds really collaborative. 100%. And I think it's like so important in this kind of situation to be really intentional about um, creating space. I don't know, just for small talk, for learning about each other's pets, um, for learning about, um, I mean, I think you know, my view is that so much of acquiring books and creating books is political work. Um, and so learning about our colleagues' values and what values align and how we can bring those to the organization to make it better. Um, building all those aspects of a relationship are really important for us, I think. And then also just being able to talk to, talk to each other um, and... Uh, being able to deal with the mistakes we make or the questions we have and not being scared of our colleagues, all that stuff is, is super important. Um, and so, yeah, we do have some, we were just talking about like we should have more press happy hours. And so we, I think we're instituting more in the coming months. Um, but I think a lot of it happens through one-on-one -on -one meetings, just having conversations and we always build in a lot of time for those um, to just chat. And then of course, like, in this modern world, Slack is a huge part of this. Um, and so I think in a lot of ways, our sort of 
random channel on Slack is one of the most important ones because that's where we share what's going on in our lives and what's bringing us joy and what we're struggling with. Um, and I think all of that makes it a better place to work and it makes the books better and it makes it easier to collaborate. You specifically acquire in history and environmental history and some interdisciplinary topics. Can you tell us what your your specific acquiring interests are? Yes. So for the University Press of Colorado, I've taken over the history list. So that's all that sort of Colorado regional history. Um, mining history has been a strength for us. Um, you know, the kind of variety of areas to that list that you could check out um, on our website. Um, also our Timberline book series, which is just like books about Colorado, Colorado stories. And then for the Wyoming imprint, um, it's sort of three interdisciplinary areas. So one is environmental humanities, the second is public humanities, and the third is democracy and uh, the United States. So thinking about environmental humanities, I mean, like, um, you know, in a lot of ways, I think about that as, as histories of the present, sort of understanding all of the current crises we face and um, RE, the environment, and how they're about human social relations and also our, you know, relations between people and the natural world, and also the question of, is there a between people and the natural world? Um, and all those sorts of questions and, and different ways to approach them from a humanities lens. Um, in terms of public humanities, there's so many different ways to think about this. It could be um, thinking about institutions that serve the public and books about that are doing kind of critical work and how those institutions work and how they could work better. It could be books about um, how to do community engaged work and sort of guides for scholars who are more and more interested in things like public history. Um, and it could be community produced projects that are sort of produced by and for the public broadly construed. Um, that's what I'm most interested in, but in a lot of ways that's the hardest to do because the academic monograph is like something that everything about it is that it's created to sort of come from the academy and, and assume that people have resources and that they are um, have an institutional affiliation already. Um, but I'm really interested to meet people who are um, trying to do that community-based work and work that's going to be beneficial to the communities that have helped create it. And then democracy and the United States. I mean, it, some, you know, historians, like U.S. historians might hear U.S. in the world um, as part of that. So thinking about um, U.S. empire, um, how the United States has functioned in the world, how the United States has had imperial and colonial relationships within its own borders, um, and all of the questions of democracy that go along with it. And again, like what are the crises of democracy that we're facing in the present, and how can we take humanities perspectives to understand how those have come to be and where they're going? Earlier on, we talked a little bit about what a day would be like for you at work. Could you share what, um, like a high and a low, without calling anyone out, but what, what's, a, what's a struggle and a joy uh, of your job? I guess let's start with like the thorn first and then go to the rose so we end on a, a high note. I mean, 
sometimes you get a project that it's like, you know, the manuscript's not perfect, but you, you can't quite figure out like, you know, it could be good, right? It could be a good fit for the press. Like, oh, this, you know, I feel like people could be really be interested in the way that this tells the story of a particular site um, in Colorado, right? And, but the writing like doesn't quite make sense yet, but I'm not an expert in regional history in Colorado. Um, so I can't speak to the subject matter and, and how to fix that part of it. I can only speak to how to fix the writing to some extent. And so sometimes you take a project like that and you end up sending it through peer review to see if um, that can be a productive process for figuring out what to do next um, with the manuscript. Um, and find those people who really are experts, who have read a lot of books like this, who know the market really well, and ask them, like, what what do you think, and, and where could this book go from here? And sometimes you do all of that, which is a lot of work, and it's a lot of energy and emotional investment from the author, and they spend a lot of time waiting, and then it comes back from peer review, and it just turns out that, like, it's not working, right? Like, the project in its current form um, is not something we can sort of move on with. And which doesn't mean it's done. It just means that the author is going to have to do really major revisions that sometimes feel like totally rewriting the manuscript um, in order for us to get it going again. Um, and that's just like such a bummer. I mean, I think it's really sad for everyone and um, everyone wants to be encouraging, usually even the peer reviewers, reviewers too. Um, but just kind of seeing that like somebody's put in so much work to something, um, but it's just not at the right place um, for moving into the publication process. Um, and I think it just creates really hard choices for the author about like, do I have the time to kind of like rehash this? Do I have the resources to find a developmental editor who can help me, you know, totally rewrite the book? Um, do I have the am I able to do the additional research that's going to be required or do I want to just let this project go and move on? Um, and so that's really, really tough and it makes me really sad. Um, I, I'm just going to yeah. jump in and say, I love that you shared this as a thorn. I know you want to get to the rose in a minute, but as someone who's been on the other end with friends and colleagues who have gotten the no in their inbox, right? They've said, oh, you know, I think it's good. They've had it for a while. I've had a little feedback. And then you get the no. To hear that it sucks for the editor to have to come back for that, I think really takes sort of the loneliness of the rejection out of the author's orbit. Like we're all sad that this is a no. And I haven't had to do that. I haven't been in your shoes, but I have had to do that as a grant reviewer. And I hated every no I had to do. It's like you have a stomach ache, you have to go for a walk. And especially the ones that were almost, those can stick with you much longer than the ones that clearly weren't ready. Yeah, absolutely. Those are painful. Yeah. And, you know, the opposite thing happens to you where it's like you you then keep going with something and then you realize you should have said no earlier because it would have been like easier for everyone to find an exit at that point. And so it's like so hard to make those decisions. And yeah, I mean, obviously I want I want everything that I start working on to succeed. And so it's harder for the author than it is for me, for sure. Um, but it's not, it's not fun to say no in those scenarios. Um, and, and I think that really humanizes um, the understanding of 
what's going on on your side. If there's just an email, you know, uh, you're sitting kind of alone in your pain when you open the, the, the email and to know that this, this is hard to say no. I think that I really appreciate that you shared that it, it gives an insight that we just don't have in another way. Um, I know you wanted to give us the rose as well. So uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll let you continue with your train of thought there. Yeah. Well, now I'm lost in this thinking about, uh, the sadness of rejections, but <laughs> no. So um, I think like there is, um, there's this moment when you move a project out of peer review and it might not be ready to like transmit yet, but you, when you're done with peer review, that means that you think it's like going to make a, a, a great book. And you also are really confident that the author can do whatever work is left Usually that means that they've given you like a revision plan with a bulleted list of like, I'm going to respond to this thing that the reviewer said. I'm going to take care of this last bit of research. I'm going to uh, reorganize this other thing, you know, and it's just like a really clear plan of like how we're going to get to that transmittal, to that moment of sending it to production. And that's one of the points where we're going to share it with the whole editorial team um, and then we're going to share it with our editorial board, which is a group of faculty from our different member institutions. It's sort of like a rotating different group for each project so that they're not um, getting exhausted by reviewing all the projects. Um, and when we're taking it to the editorial board at that point, we're like really confident in this project. And we're um, just looking for the editorial board to identify any problems that they see with the peer review process that we've done or any questions that they have um, before we sort of move forward. And it's just so thrilling because that's another moment where you get to share the project with the rest of the editorial team, with the rest of the staff, and then with this outside group of um, faculty. And you just, looking through the sort of memos that we share at that stage, you see all the work that has gone into this, right? And the maybe the peer review process started three, four years ago. Um, and you just see all the different versions that the author has done and you see their final plan for like getting this thing into production and you start to get a sense of like a date when this book will be between covers, as we say. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess it's like you feel proud, <laughs> um, you feel joy. And I also like love to watch other editors bring those projects. Um, it's just like. I don't know. It's like a book is being born at that moment, almost. <laughs> what do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? Maybe it's, you know, some of what we were just talking about, like editors are, are people too. Um, I don't think there's a wrong time to reach out to an editor. I think that the culture of our world is such that we expect that we're supposed to be all by ourselves, create a perfect proposal, send it out blind and if it doesn't get accepted by a press like we have failed um and the reality of our world is that we all need help to do everything um and you should feel that you deserve that support from your colleagues um from your fellow students from your fellow faculty members um and from your editors. And I think it's like, it's never too soon to reach out. It's okay to ask questions about how to do a proposal, um, about whether the proposal would be a right fit for the press, about um, whether they have suggestions for other places to send it. And just, you know, remember that there are people on the other side. Um, 
and they want you to succeed um, because they like seeing more books out in the world. Um, and um, going into it with that attitude that like you deserve help because everybody deserves help and that's what you need to make a book. I think that's a wonderful place to end with. It's very hopeful and it's very human in a world that sometimes doesn't feel that way. Thank you so much for being here today, Robert Ramaswamy, and telling us about your work as an acquisitions editor and about the brand new imprint that you're working for. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please. Thank you so much. Join us again.